going to be reading this morning from Psalms, um, chapters 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The, king, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for just giving us the opportunity to gather together in just such a sweet reminder of your love. And I just pray that you would um, give us ears to hear your word today. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. And um, yeah, we just ask that you would meet us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Sarah. Hey, Stan. <laughs> What's up, dude? <laughs> yeah, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll start seeing a lot less of these glary plastic shields as the weeks go on. Um, it's good to be with y'all. Uh, I'm Cameron, and as uh, you heard read, we're not, we're not in Mark currently. Uh, we're gonna, so we started the Gospel of in Mark. It took us about four months to get through two chapters, I think, so uh, that tells you about the pace that we're going to be taking that thing. So um, we, we really enjoy, uh, you know, thoroughly walking through the books of the Bible that way. But um, when, we're, when we're doing a long series, we'll occasionally want to take breaks and do something else. Um, and so we're going to take just a few week break uh, to look at the Psalms together. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know how much you know about the Psalms. If you, if you haven't been a Christian for a long time or maybe you're just kind of flirting with the faith, exploring Jesus, have some questions might not know anything about the Psalms, and that's great. That's okay. Um, the Psalms were ancient Israel's uh, book of collected prayers and poems and songs uh, for use both for individual worship, like privately, you know, some of them were specifically written to help someone pray, to give words to the kinds of longings and anguish and celebrations and whatever else uh, that a person might want to pray to the Lord, but also uh, even more common for collective worship, for corporate worship, for the people of God to gather together 
to sing them together, to pray them together. And it not only held that position for uh, ancient Israel, this is this is Old Testament book, it's part of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, but also for the early Christian church. Um, they just, as they adopted the entire Hebrew Bible as their scriptures, um, the Psalms continued to have that prominent place uh, in individual and, and, and community worship. Um, so the Psalms are a guide for prayer. We read them, we read lots of prayers in them, and they teach us how to pray, and in fact, they even give us the words to pray alongside them. But they're also a guide for our feelings, for our emotions as well. Um, they teach us, if, if you put those two things together, they, what they do is they teach us how to bring our whole selves, um, in, in, including our deepest and even, even our sometimes our ugliest emotions, to God in prayer. That's what they're for. Um, and this is important to highlight because sometimes Christians get weird with emotion, don't they? You don't, uh, but some, some Christians do, <laughs> some of them out there. Uh, no, I do. Um, many of us have been taught, uh, and, and in some cases maybe explicitly, or maybe in some cases just implicitly through, I don't know, subtle little cues or whatever, um, that, that emotionally detached stoicism uh, is, is a marker of Christian maturity or Christ-likeness or whatever. Um, maybe at some point I've given you that idea, and if so, I'm sorry because it's false. It's, it's not true. Um, it isn't true. So we're going to take a look at the Psalms, and it, but it raises the question, why, why now? So if this is a prayer and song book helping people connect uh, connect their emotions to the heart of God in prayer. Why now? Well, I just, I, it's obvious to say, and I feel like every, every month or so we, we end up having to recount kind of the litany of things that made the last year, year and a half or so just especially hard. But it's been a year of grief and tragedy and pain, disorientation. The virus itself, the COVID-19 alone, it's just this massive weight kind of bearing down on everybody's backs, not only like for some of us, fear of the virus, uh, but for others, it's more so about like, how do I adjust to these new social situations? Or how much do I push back against certain things? How much do I lean in? What's the right way for churches and for Christians to respond? How do we balance the faith and the trust that we have versus trying to protect others versus any real fear that we might possess? It's all complicated. It's stressful to carry all that. You've all been carrying it for a long time now. Um, and not only that, but of course we've had this massive reckoning with racial injustice. We've had the loss of intimate community. We've had financial instability, I know, for multiple people in our community. Just, just finances thrown up, and I don't know like, where money is going to come from. Um, on top of that, we've got uh, our own city sort of facing perpetual rioting downtown and violence, gun violence, homelessness. Uh, even, even the stress of coming out of the pandemic is stressing some of us out, right? Like, I don't know what, I don't know what to do with my face now. <laughs> Never had to worry about this portion. And uh, now the fact that I have a nervous tick where I, I pick my beard is now on evidence for all of you to see. <laughs> there it is. Um, so, uh, all that to say, it, it's been a tough year. And I've said this before. All that stuff aside, all that stuff's affecting all of us to one degree or another. And then there's just normal life. Tragedy. Like, 
Discomfort, pain, losing loved ones, losing relationships, trouble at work, trouble in your marriage, trouble in your friendships, trouble with your children. Like those things don't stop just because we're having a uniquely chaotic year. Um, so that just adds, it just piles on. Most of us are, or have been recently, or if not, or probably will be soon emotionally overwhelmed. I think that's fair to say. And we have a God that cares about our emotions. Um, and you could, you could unpack that from multiple angles. I'll, I'll just say a couple. One is that we bear the image. We have been created in the image. You, whoever you are, I don't know all of your stories, but I can say with certainty, you have been created in the image of God, the image of a God who feels. Um, throughout the Bible, we see God the Father express deep emotion all across the spectrum. He doesn't fly off the handle. It's never inappropriately expressed or whatever. It's not sinful emotion, but it's the full range of emotions. And we see the same thing in Jesus, even as we read the Gospel of Mark. Even last week, the story of Jesus responding to the Pharisees with fury. And we're all like, that doesn't seem right. It is right. It is right. He expresses emotions, and because he does, he made you to do so too. To feel them and to express them. It's a feature, not a bug of your humanity, <laughs> that you're emotional. We can, of course, of course, and preface it, we can, of course, draw false conclusions from our emotions. We can be led astray by them. We can let them dominate us in ways that are unhealthy. We can overly focus on them and drill down. All those things are true. But the fact that we emote in general, in and of itself, it is good. It's how you were made. It's how I was made. And more than that, um, sharing emotion, like sharing emotion between people is a key to intimacy with God and with other people. Um, emotions in part, like their function in part, is to, is to indicate to you and then, as expressed to other people, like what is valuable and important to us. When our bodies react to, to and with an emotion, that's an indicator. Like something important is happening here and you stop and pay attention to it. And, and, and whether we're cognizant of those things that are churning out those emotions or not, they're there. We need to stop and pay attention. Um, there's uh, a book from, from town here uh, called, uh, what was it called? I just read it. Why Emotions Matter, uh, Tristan and John Collins. Uh, I like this quote. They, they said, sharing our emotions with words is foundational to a meaningful friendship. It's, tr it's how we truly get to know each other. And it can be enjoyable and rewarding to have discussions about our thinking and logic but deep and trusting friendships are built on sharing our fears, our failures, our joys, and our sorrows. Emotions are a bridge to another person's soul. Another good book put it this way, Alistair Groves, uh, his book's called Untangling Emotions. He says, that's not why sharing emotions in a relationship, that's why not sharing emotions in a relationship is a problem. No matter how deeply you love and are connected to someone, a lack of emotional expression and connection communicates a lack of love, which can have a subtle, corrosive effect over time. And the reality is God designed us for intimacy, even this kind of intimacy, the sharing of emotion with himself and with one another. Uh, my, my wife was telling me, she's a counselor, she's a therapist, and she, she 
sent me some great links, uh, including a few studies that have, have been done in the last decade on the impact of relationship quality on pain and threat reception in the brain. Um, so the short, of, the short of one of these studies was, we'll just filter it through one, one subject's experience, but they, they took this woman and they put her uh, in an MRI machine, they had her hooked up to that, and they at attached something to her and said, hey, uh, you're going to experience uh, an electric shock that's going to be painful here in a second. And she was in the thing alone, they shocked her, everything flares up, pain, pain. And she, she reported, yes, that was painful, that was terrible. Please don't do that again. <laughs> can't believe we're still allowed to do this kind of thing. Um, then they did the same thing. They, they uh, put a stranger in there with her to hold her hand. Negligible, if any, difference. Then they put her husband in there. What do you think happened? He held her hand. Negligible difference. Why? Their marriage was really struggling. There's no intimacy. They didn't know each other. They weren't sharing with each other. Then they went through an extensive course of kind of in-depth marital relational counseling. They worked through things. They, they, they learned how to actually be vulnerable with one another and receive the vulnerability of the other person. They run the test again. Generally, the pain she reported was less, but finally, whenever her husband held her hand, almost nothing, no pain. So it didn't hurt. That's crazy. The, the presence of a safe attachment, a safe person, a trusted person that you, can re you really know you belong to and they belong to you, it doesn't have to be a marriage, it can be a deep friendship, whatever. It literally changes the way we encounter threat and pain and difficulty in the world, even to the degree of an MRI showing the way your brain is responding to the exact same stimulus. You know what that testifies to? It is not good for man to be alone. Words of Genesis. And it's not just human relationships. God himself desires for us to share that kind of life-changing intimacy, first of all, with him. And yes, of course, with others as well. He desires for you to bring the whole of who you're, you are and what you're experiencing, whatever it is, good, bad, ugly, usually combinations of all three, to bring those things to him, trusting that he can handle it. And he still loves you. It's funny when you stop and say, yeah, it, it, the Bible claims God's omniscient. He already knows everything. He already knows every little corner of your heart. But we think, well, I can't share that with him. I can't tell that with him. He already knows. He wants us to come trusting he can handle it, trusting that he cares, trusting that he will love you through it, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and seeing what a difference it makes to not have to stuff what you're feeling down, to avoid it, to ignore it, to let it fester, but to just bring it out into his life. That's what he wants. And so actually the Psalms, at least from one angle, it's not the only thing we could say about the Psalms, but it's a massively important one, is that they are a guidebook for exploring this kind of territory. So we need to take a minute, more than a minute, take some weeks, more than that, take a lifetime to, to look at these ancient songs, these ancient poems, these ancient prayers for instruction on how to feel and to see the goodness and the dignity and the value of our emotions and 
most importantly, how to bring those authentically to God. And then that's going to as well have implications for how to do that with our neighbors as well. And so a personal confession, I am not good at this. This is one of those, uh, it's going to be a whole series, frankly, where I'm going to feel like a giant hypocrite up here. Not because I don't value these things, not because I've never thought about these things or I don't believe these things are true, but it's just difficult for me to have this kind of vulnerability with friends, with my wife, with God. I'm not naturally wired this way. I have to fight for it. And often I don't. I'm just lazy. I'm just like, ah, I don't need that. But I do. And you do. And so I was preface this whole, today, rest of these talks with like, please do not take this as expert stance coming down from the mountain with the glow of God to deliver the truth to y'all. This is like a fellow struggler saying, I'm pretty sure this is true. And together we've got to figure out how by the grace of God and his empowerment to live into this. <laughs> okay? Amen? All right. Well, that's the plan. So let's just, we're going we're gonna to move quickly from here. Um, I just want to basically give us an overview of what are the songs. We talked about it a bit, but as I mentioned, it's a collection of poetry, um, including prayers and songs, some for individual use, some for collective use, for community worship. And there, it was written, the psalms themselves, the individual songs or poems or prayers were written by all kinds of different authors. Many are anonymous. There's some as old, even attributed to Moses, uh, many from David, and they were collected and edited into the final arrangement that we now have sometime after Israel's return from exile. It's hard to get a specific date, but they were used all along, so you can almost imagine this growing collection of, of poetry being built throughout Israel's history, finally codified after the exile. Um, they've been arranged into five books, or sections, and, and, and most scholars agree that Psalms 1 and 2 kind of serve as an introduction to the whole Psalter, and then the last five Psalms are kind of a conclusion that wrap the thing up. They've been called a temple hymnal for the second temple period and, and, and became almost a second Torah. Five more books. You know, five books of the Torah? Here's five more books that, that help people both remember what God had already done, remember the first Torah, and to cry out to him about the hopes and promises that were still unfulfilled, that they're still waiting for. So, not only that, but the Psalms are, 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 are ancient Hebrew poetry, and, and poetry in general, there's a, there's a great book called Introduction to Biblical Poetry by Adele Berlin. She writes, poetry conveys thought. There's something the poet wants to communicate, and poetry conveys that thought in a self-conscious manner through a special structuring of the language that calls attention to the how of the message as well as the what. In fact, in good poetry, the how and the what become indistinguishable. Poetry often uses concrete images to express abstract ideas. Um, it's, it's meant to stir your imagination up get you to think about one thing that you've maybe seen or felt or experienced to connect it to another. And it's intended to express and, and invoke emotion in you when you read it, to help us feel along with the poet. And all this applies to ancient Hebrew poetry. Did you know about a third of the whole Bible is poetry? Not just the Psalms, but all kinds of other sec sections, lots of the prophets. There's so much poetry, so many times, the, even in the narrative, people break out in poetry. 
the way it communicates is of deep value to the people of God and to God himself. And, and ancient Hebrew poetry, it had its own conventions, all kinds of conventions, but the most notable is it didn't have a strict meter or rhyme in sound. Some scholars say it rhymed in thought like that. It uses parallelism, usually two lines um, next to one another that either restate what the other, restate one another, or contrast, or compare, or whatever. And one of the keys to understanding this thing is to actually look at the relationship between the two lines. That's where the action is. Line one, line two, if you just take either of those out of context, you're going to miss it. But the two together and the interplay, that's, that's the key to understanding. In their great book on biblical interpretation, um, Gordon Stewart, Douglas Fee say, while the Psalms contain and reflect doctrine, I think obviously, of course, they're not intended to be repositories for doctrinal exposition. We have other books for that. They're meant to be poetic reflection on the feeling <laughs> of life with God and the perception of life without God, the crying out into the void, God, where are you? That's what they're for. Um, one other thing about poetry, it, it's not only a unique way to communicate meaning and to stir up feeling and, and, and those kind of reactions in people, it's also a powerful way to, to ensure that people remember stuff, right? Um, many of the psalms were specifically composed to be sung as well. So, so think about this. Uh, a poem is more likely to be remembered than just a piece of prose. And then a melody, you throw a melody onto it and you can really remember that. If things were deemed important, super important, they'd often be uh, deemed you know, worthy of reciting in song. So you remember it, so you don't forget. Honestly, think about the way we can recall melodies and lyrics of songs, even ones that aren't meaningful to us at all, decades later. I promise you, I could recite every single word of, now I don't remember the name of the song. <laughs> I think it's called Every Morning by Sugar Ray. <laughs> actually, actually, at a leader's retreat, me and Evan Way, the Door of Hope Southeast worship pastor, performed that karaoke here in this building. And then we immediately afterwards were like, we were like, dude, that, that, song, that song is about sex. Uh, huh, okay. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't my proudest moment. Um, Sugar Ray, every morning. I could, I promise you, every single word of that thing, I've got it. My wife can testify, because I sing dumb songs like that all the time, <laughs> especially from the 90s. Uh, but uh, these, uh, you will be amazed if you dig into your memory the, the lyrics that you remember. I have that thing down pat. It means nothing to me. I didn't try to keep it there. It's just there. Decades later, it's just in there. I wish it wasn't in there, <laughs> you know? It's going to flare up from time to time. You can't get it out of your head. That's why... In part, the Psalms were the way that they were. To help this stuff get lodged deep in these like impenetrable parts of your heart and mind and soul. That you'd be able to recall them. Recall them afresh. Years, years later, decades later. One more thing to say on the Psalms. The, all these things are true and they are a roadmap to authentic communion with God. And they're meant to be read aloud, recited aloud. They're meant to be prayed. They're meant to be sung. They're not meant to be static words on a page that you just kind of go, oh, that's interesting. They're meant to be utilized. They're meant to be, you, you do something with them. You perform them. You live them out. 
you let the words of these ancient writers become your words, your pleas to God himself. Um, a habit of praying and even singing the Psalms teaches us how to commune with God through our highest highs and our lowest lows, which is what we're going to see as we explore the Psalter. And it's an act of communion with God in and of itself. Uh, I like scholar David Starling. He wrote, when we pray the Psalms, we're being taught how to sing, how to give thanks, how to lament, how to protest, how to praise along with the psalmist and in the company with the whole people of God throughout millennia. That's cool. It's not just cool. It's crucial. <laughs> it's crucial to learning what it means to be a worshiping people. So, Psalm 1 and 2, as we said, are an introduction to the, to the whole book of Psalms. And we're going to just brief, I mean, briefly, briefly look at these. I mean, I wish we had more time, frankly, for these, but we're going we're gonna to try to move quickly. So real quick, I just want to look at Psalm 1. I know the text is small, but I wanted to keep, keep the, the formatting. Um, so here's Psalm 1. Sarah read it for us, but we'll read it again. It's short. The introduction to the whole book, the whole collection of the psalm says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So I just want to focus on one thing here, in that, that there's a promise. Psalm 1 begins with a promise, a promise of blessing, or you could even just translate it as joy, happiness even. The blessing, the joy, the happiness that comes to the man doesn't walk like the wicked, but delights in the law of the Lord, who walks not in their counsel, but in God's counsel. And not just joy and happiness, but, but even security, that image of, of a tree planted by streams of water. It's nourished. It has all that it needs. All that it needs. Its fruit is just abundant and growing. The tree is healthy. The tree lacks nothing. This is what comes to those who meditate, it says, on God's law, day and night. And that word meditate implies all kinds of things. It's just, it's just to continue to turn it over and over again. Read it. Read the law. Think on it. Think about its implications. Continually turn it over from every angle. What does this imply for this situation, for this situation? To speak it to yourself, to speak it to others, to hear it spoken to you to pray it, to write it down, to keep on engaging it. That's the posture of the blessed one, the wise one, toward the law of God. And the opposite, this, this psalm really lays out two, two paths. There's, there's that path of blessing, and then there's the other. There's the opposite. There's the ignoring it. There's the pursuit of wickedness, pursuit of a life apart from God and his law and his wisdom and his vision for life and hum human flourishing. And the results are just the opposite. It's withering 
Ultimately, it's death. There you go. There's a promise to those who meditate and, and, and focus on and turn over again and again the law of God. And in part, that's what the Psalms all are going to be. They're going to be bringing in this situation or this kind of situation or that kind of situation or that kind of situation their experience into conversation with the law of God and the promises of God, the scriptures, and to lay that commingled thing at the foot of God as an act of trust and worship. Let's keep going to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from, their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his worth and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So much we could say here. I just want to highlight three things, and then we're going to wrap up. First, this, this psalm acknowledges, there's an acknowledgement of the broken state of things in those first three verses. The nations, the peoples of the earth all are raging, and they're plotting in vain. And, and the kings are setting themselves, the kings and the rulers, even conspiring together against God, and against his anointed king, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. So it, it, it immediately acknowledged, like, things are not right in the world. People themselves are in deep rebellion. And we know, even connected all the way back to Genesis, human rebellion is also connected to just the, the general state of discord that exists when you walk out your front door every day. You can't avoid it. You can't hide from it. It's just there. This is the state of things. But with that, verses 4 through 9, we, th there's now a message of hope. That, that the, the king, the true king, is going to be installed. God's anointed will sit on the throne. And he's going to be given the nations. He's going to be given the ends of the earth. And the implication is that this is good news for those who will bend the knee to this king. And then a final message in the last two verses, and it ends on a note of grace, because of course, there, there's good things for those who would bend the knee to the king, but there is destruction ahead for those who will not. The righteousness of, uh, uh, of God, the, the long suffering in the face of injustice will come to an end and he will say, there is no, no more no more evil to be done in my world. And that will become very bad news for those who desire to keep perpetrating those things apart from the Lord. But, but finally, it ends on a note of grace, the last, last three verses. 
He says, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish. For his wrath is quickly kindled in this last line. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Even amidst a word of judgment, there's an invitation to come and take refuge. And one commentator said, there's no refuge from him. There's only refuge in him. This is the way things are, but anyone can and will be blessed if they will merely take him up on his offer to be their refuge. So in Psalms 1 and 2, we get, we get this huge, big picture thing, but we get this massive thing. The world is broken, but there is a hope for those who will lean into the refuge that God offers and allegiance to the king that he's going to install. And through it all, the way of joy and peace amidst all the uncertainty comes in meditating on what God's revealed. That's Psalm 1 and 2. Um, one other thing we have to note, though, is we don't come to these psalms from the position, the same position that someone in, you know, 500 B.C. would come. We come to it as those on the other side of the cross of Christ and the resurrection and ascension of the Son of God. And so we rightly, when you hear, see these phrases about the King and the Son and the grace and the refuge, and you begin to ask these questions, like what does it mean for God to be uh, you know, slow to anger and merciful next to these ideas, but actually His anger is quickly kindled? How does the justice the absolute justice, the righteousness of God nests next to the love and mercy and grace. But we have an answer. It's the cross. The cross is the other interpretive key that we bring to all of these songs that, that, that we now have the privilege of even seeing and knowing. And we could say that the Psalms are all about Jesus. And I want to highlight just a couple of things here. First, Jesus modeled exactly what, what the Psalms are going to model for us, and that Jesus took his deep emotion to God. We already said he felt deeply, but, but he processed it with God. Think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 39. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And what does he go do? He goes and prays. His soul is full of so much sorrow that he feels he's on the cusp of death. And he takes it to his father. He goes to the cross. And as he's on the cross, you know what words come out of his mouth? The words of what book? The Psalms. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lets the psalmist word become his. It puts the words to that that anguish that none of us can even comprehend, the Son of God, separated from His Father for the first time, bearing the penalty and the punishment that our sin deserved. He uses the Psalms to cry out to God, feeling forsaken. Even though He's part of the Trinity, He is God Himself. Why have you forsaken me, God? Tim Keller, his little devotional on the Psalms. He said that the hymns that Jesus sang at the Passover meal would have been the great Hallel, Psalms 113 through 18. Indeed, there is every reason to assume Jesus would have sung all the Psalms constantly throughout his life so that he knew them by heart. 
It's the book of the Bible that Jesus quotes from more than any other. But the Psalms were not simply sung by Jesus, they're also about him. Because the Psalms, we've ended Keller's quote, the Psalms are full of prophetic words about the, about the Jesus who would come. So many of the questions the psalmists are wrestling with and the questions they raise in us as we're going to read some gnarly stuff. I think next week we're going to probably look at one of the most difficult psalms. We're just going to head it off right at the front. We're going to be shocked by some of the stuff we read in these psalms, if you haven't already. But these questions that these psalms raise, again, how do the anger and justice of God fit together with his love and mercy? Why do God's people suffer? Why? How do I take another step forward under the crushing weights that I'm carrying? What do I do when I feel like the, ab- the presence of God is absolutely distant from me and he doesn't care? Is there any genuine future hope? Jesus is the answer to every one of those questions seeded into this ancient prayer book. So, while there are a ton of ways we can explore the Psalms, it's a huge book, one of the biggest, longest in the Bible. we specifically are going to pick out a handful over the next few weeks that speak to these particular emotional experiences that, that you've, you've had or if you haven't had, you're going to sooner than later. And, and, and we're going uh, t- to see how God wants us to bring all of these to him in light of what he's revealed in the scripture in the face of the sufferings that we have experienced and will experience with the knowledge that Jesus is that king who's been established on the throne, but it didn't look like you and I would have imagined it looked like his coronation was a crucifixion under the shadow of the merciful cross. We will, we will process these things with the God who wants to know us because he wants to know all of you. He wants to be with all of you. He wants the same of you to desire those things with him. That's the kind of intimacy he desires. And because he's full of love and grace and mercy, and because Jesus did go to the cross in our stead, it is good news that he wants to be close. It means no matter what your level of guilt, no matter what your level of mistakes, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how dark your life seems, no matter how much you feel you've failed him or others, he has grace for you love for you, mercy for you, compassion for you, and the desire that he would spend the rest of eternity with you. He doesn't want to just be with you at a distance, you know, across the room over the way he wants you close. He wants you to draw near and he will draw near to you. That's what we're going to find in the, in the Psalms. And if, if we're sitting here going, well, gosh, how do I connect this? That's what we're going to do week after week. We're going to take both the highs and the lows of human experience. We're going to look at the Psalms, how they encourage them, and we're going to connect it to Christ. And we're going to try to build, as a community, a group of people, here and online, in homes, in our book clubs, wherever. At Door of Hope Northeast, we want to become a people who can do this with him and with one another. Um, oh, to that end, this, this is uh, not really part of the sermon, but I'll show you guys these. Um, Tim Keller, the little book I, I quoted from, he has, he has a, uh, this little devotional book. It's called The Songs of Jesus. Him and his wife, Kathy, co-wrote this. Um, 
And this is uh, a psalm a day, basically, for a year. Um, and it just has the psalm, has the text of the psalm, and then a little prayer reflection. And this is just one way that, uh, you know, you, any of us could get started with this practice of taking the psalms and then praying through them and then translating them into our own words and using them to teach us how to come to God with wherever we're at. And so if, if you have no experience with that and you want to get started, this could be a great little guide for you. And uh, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't really want to stampede, but I'm just going to put these up front. <laughs> I, I don't imagine with this crowd we're going to be trampling over each other to get a, uh, a Psalms book. But um, I'm just seriously going to put these, you know what, I'm going to put them over here. Um, if you're like, oh, you know, I can grab that from Pals or Amazon or whatever, uh, feel free to, to leave a copy. But if you're like, man, I, I want to do that. I want to do that today. Just grab, those are free. You can just grab one. Um, but that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. We're going to learn how to take our whole selves in prayer to God with this ancient poetry uh, and see if he doesn't meet us there in ways that surprise the heck out of us. How's that sound? All right. Well, let's pray.